the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Senior safety and well-being was the focus of some of the measures approved at Toronto City Council this past week. Councillors voted in favour of a new agency to manage a city-run seniors housing corporation and a beefed-up version of the Vision Zero Road Safety Plan. Another $23 million will be spent between 2020 and 2024 to reduce cyclist and pedestrian deaths to zero, bringing the total to $123 million. One of the new initiatives is to reduce speed limits on a number of arterial roads across the city from 60 to 50 kilometers an hour. In a tragic twist of timing, just as council was about to vote on Tuesday, a 60-year-old pedestrian was struck and killed by a garbage truck near Don Mills and Steeles. The tragedy happened in Councillor Shelley Carroll's ward. Libby Snyber was joined by transportation expert Gideon Foreman and Councillor Carroll to discuss. All of us were looking at our, our ward maps and the roads that would be affected by the Vision Zero proposal. But for me, receiving that news that the uh, collision and, and eventual uh, death had happened to a six-year-old woman really made me put myself in that place. Uh, that could just as easily have been me at Don Mills Road and, and Cliffwood. Um, you know, I'm pretty vital. I, I still have a job. My family relies on that. I, I have uh, young grandchildren and relatively young children who still rely on me to be a big part of the family. And that could be the, the, the case of yesterday's victim. And that snuffed out. And uh, it it really is the at the end of a, a line of fatalities over the last couple of years near there uh, at, at Finch and Skymark uh, within a few months of each other, of a couple of other older, but, but just as important to their families, uh, residents in our area. And we really know we have to act now to begin to really across the city bring about safer driving and, and pedestrian conditions. One of the things that was decided was to reduce the speed on a lot of these arterial roads from 60 to 50. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to bring in Gideon Foreman at this point. Uh, a lot of safety advocates say, okay, 50 is better than 60, but, but at that rate of speed, a pedestrian who was struck is still likely to be very seriously injured or killed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's an important step. We applaud any movement to slow down cars to make it safer to walk and cycle, but we're not there yet. I mean, 50 is an improvement, but we would like to see it lower. And on lots of streets in the city, it is lower, and they're very safe. So that's the direction we need to be going in. Shelley, what are some of the things that you come up against when you're trying to reduce these speed limits? I mean, we have a situation with gridlock in the city. Uh, These are big arterial roads, and uh, I guess you come up against the drivers. Well, exactly. One thing is that you come up against politics. You know, if you went from 60 to 40 on some of these roads... um, Sure, there would be a, a bit of a political outcry, but what what was more important to me was the uh, the comment from staff that if you want to make a big change across a large swath of the city, you want you want buy-in from from the greatest uh, possible number of residents and politicians, and so we're making this incremental change. But 
The main reason that they're recommending incremental change is if we go to a 20-kilometer drop all at once, in many cases it just won't be complied with because the roads were originally designed for 60 kilometers. They're generous roads, and, and cars have a tendency, even without intending to, to speed up simply because the design of, of the road accommodates it. And so compliance with 40 kilometers an hour right now would, would probably not be there to a great percentage, and therefore we'd be setting up a new dangerous situation. And so I heard that loud and clear from staff. That if we want to, if we want to be somewhat uniform, we want to go across the city. I've got a big swath in my ward from Bayview at my western edge to Victoria Park. All of Finch Avenue will go down in speed. So what we want to work on is compliance, and we want to monitor it. And this is just Vision Zero. 2.0. There will be a 3.0 at which we look at the stats and where we need to go further. Gideon Foreman, what do you think of that explanation that by lowering the speed limits by only 10 kilometers an hour, we're more likely to get enforcement? I think that it's an important step, but I think we need a cultural shift. And over time, as people get used to a city that moves a little more safely, there'll be buy-in. We need a cultural shift. I mean, when I was a kid, people smoked on airplanes. They smoked in high schools. It's unthinkable now. Gideon Foreman, Transportation Policy Analyst with the David Suzuki Foundation and Toronto City Councillor Shelley Carroll. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. On Wednesday, Health Minister Christine Elliott announced another measure designed to alleviate the situation with hallway medicine. This one involves additional beds in a transitional facility for patients leaving hospital and waiting for long-term care. On Monday, Elliott announced increased funding for a new outpatient treatment, which will make surgery unnecessary for some patients. These announcements are coming in bits and pieces. Just as the health minister had to walk back a promise Premier Doug Ford reiterated just last week that he would end hallway medicine in a year. Some patient advocates and union representatives have their own ideas about how to tackle the problem, much different solutions than are proposed by the Ontario PCs. Joining Libby to discuss, Miranda Ferrier, president and founder of the Ontario Personal Support Workers Association, and Natalie Mera, executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition. Well, the government is, um, you know, saying that they're doing things about hallway medicine, but in truth, in this year's budget, hospital funding is actually declining in real dollar terms. So they're actually cutting hospital funding. And while they're making announcements about these programs and services, um, all of that funding is within the budget amount, which is less in real dollar terms than it was last year. And, uh, and we have the highest readmission rates in hospitals. And we hear daily at the Health Coalition from people who loved ones are in hospital and, you know, they've sent in six people to try and push the family, to push the person out of hospital, even though there's nowhere appropriate for them to go. The family's scared. They can't take care of them at home and so on. Lots of pressure to move people out too frail and not stable enough. And those people end up back in hospital within 30 days, sicker than ever, sometimes with their health compromised forever as a result of, you know, too few beds. We have um, emergency departments that are overcrowded. We have people waiting on stretchers and hallways. And the numbers are not down, they're up. I did a major report looking at all of the data 
when uh, the Drummond Commission did its report, so approximately 10 years ago. At that time, there were 590 people waiting on stretchers every day in Ontario and hallways. Uh, according to the Devlin Commission, that report that came out in January, there are now 1,000 people waiting every day on stretchers and hallways in Ontario's hospitals. And they're waiting on stretchers not because they have the flu and they're malingering, but because they're sick, they need admission into a bed, and you don't get into a hospital these days in Ontario unless you're very, very sick indeed. Uh, and they can't get into a bed because all the beds are full, because we've cut more beds in this province than anywhere in the country. You're not going to solve hallway medicine without restoring hospital capacity. That's, you know, restoring cut hospital beds, reopening the closed wards, etc., I'd like to bring Miranda Ferrier into the conversation at this point, uh, because I'd like to know your take on this. Uh, The minister was talking about a pilot project to get people home care so they can leave the hospital. Have you noticed an increase in the availability of home care? Um, actually, Libby, we have not noticed any increase in the availability of home care. And even if there was an availability in home care, unfortunately, there aren't the personal support workers on the front line to provide that care. So what we're seeing here is, you know, lots of great initiatives, lots of great ideas, but policies and ideas are not going to fix the problem. We actually have to implement uh, change. And one of those things that we need to see is more personal support workers and nurses in the front line in order to provide this care. I mean, I watched uh, Minister Elliott's uh, announcement this morning. It's wonderful that they are more beds for reactivation centers, care centers, in order to flow people from the hospital into that care center, into their homes. It's a great concept. It's a great idea. But if you don't have the frontline staff, to provide that care, which we currently don't, Libby, as I know you're aware of. Mm-hmm. And what has to happen to get more personal support workers? Better pay for them? Better pay, better hours. Um, I mean, one of the things that we hear at the association every single day and our membership, uh, we, we now represent over 35,000 PSWs in the province. Uh, they're screaming for self-regulation. They're screaming for, for some form of recognition, um, some foundation to grow the profession from. Natalie Mara, what would you like to leave us with? Well, we have increased home care dramatically in Ontario. In fact, home care has grown by 5% for, the, you know, 15 years uh, in Ontario. Hospitals, on the other hand, have been cut steadily for 30 years. Uh, and at this point, home care is an important service, but it's not going to replace what is currently being cut in hospitals. And the fact that people are waiting on stretchers and hallways to get into a hospital bed, into an acute care hospital bed, is not going to be relieved without providing more of those beds. We are now at the bottom of Canada. By far, we're 14,000 beds short of the average of the other provinces because we have cut so many hospital beds in this province. People are suffering. And uh, Miranda? (laughs) I just wanted to say that, you know, a lot of the initiatives that the Ontario government are putting forward are very positive, but they need to start looking at their front line and their front line staff. And I agree with Natalie. There has been a 5% increase in home care 
in the past uh, decade or so. But unless we have the workers, it's not going to work. Miranda Ferrier, president and founder of the Ontario Personal Support Workers Association, and Natalie Mayra, executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition. It's the third time in two months a violent offender held at CAMH has escaped custody. 47-year-old Jay Bin Kong was committed to Canada's largest mental health institution in 2016 after killing another boarder in his rooming house with a meat cleaver. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and found not criminally responsible. On July 3rd, he went missing while he was on an unescorted pass in the community. But not only did he leave the hospital, he actually managed to leave the country after boarding an international flight, most likely to China. There were no warnings from police. Several investigations are now underway, including internally at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. Joining Libby Snymer to discuss, Dr. Gary Chamowitz, Head of Service Forensic St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, and criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. There's two takeaways from this story, Libby, that I think are really interesting. The circling of the wagons now by CAMH and the ORB, specifically CAMH, to say, we're going to be more strict. We're going to have this one person in charge of all these privileges. I can tell you, Libby, having reviewed this case, this is not CAMH's fault. This is not the fault of the mental health system. This is not the fault of the Ontario Review Board. Everything for Mr. Kong was going very, very well. So the idea that they're now going to make it harder for similarly situated people to have their day passes, to be integrated into the community is exactly the wrong knee-jerk approach. And the second point, Libby, and the far more interesting one to me, is the complete and utter screw-up at Toronto Pearson Airport that let this man get by whatever security checkpoints he had to get by, let him get on to an international flight, and let him get to China. For you and I, Libby, and I'm guessing, Libby, you travel a lot, I do, When you can't take a yogurt and a granola on a plane, you can't take your sunscreen to Cancun, you can't take a bottle of water or baby formula for your kid, and you're getting secondarily screened if you travel with, you know, your little doggy or you bring back an apple from Hawaii. The idea that this man got through Pearson Airport and all of the security there when he's flagged as who he is... That, to me, is the story, and I think the response of privacy and confidentiality and we're not going to tell you anything is horse manure. Okay. Uh, right now, I would also like to bring in Dr. Gary Shamovitz, and he is the head of forensic psychiatry at St. Joseph's Healthcare. Uh, is the public right to be worried about this? I, I think, I mean... People are worried when when people take off from hospitals when they shouldn't do and when people have committed serious offences. But I I think the worry is overstated. Um, And i got to tell you, you can go and buy a lottery ticket today or stand outside in a lightning storm and you're more likely to win the lottery or be struck by lightning than running to difficulties from uh, from anybody who has uh, not returned from a pass from a forensic program. Um, kind of the other things that people don't quite get is that half, at least half of the forensic psychiatry patients uh, in Ontario live in the community, many of them working, studying, um, living their lives, living independently. And so as part of their reintegration to the community, many people are on passes. Um, forensic hospitals are not jails. Um, they are charged with keeping the public safe as well as uh, reintegrating the individuals back into the community. No fingers, none, 
and I can point fingers easily, Libby, I'm not shy, as you know. As I do know, yes. Right. Should be pointed to the direction of CAMH and to the point that the doctor makes, let me flesh this out. Public safety, when there's a disposition at the Ontario Review Board, what that means in English for people who don't know, is when somebody's found not criminally responsible, they're sort of done at court. So when you and I talk about court and Harvey Weinstein and Gomeshi and Bernardo, that's a different fish. The Ontario Review Board, once a year, looks at somebody and the paramount concern that they have is public safety. And what would surprise people here, and it's not the narrative that some people will pick up on here, Libby, and that's to their detriment, not mine, is that this man was being watched very, very closely. He was doing well, particularly in late 2018, 2019, in the community. There were no issues, no incidents. Yes, he said about 100 times to his doctors, I'm going to go to China to join my mother. But from a public safety point of view, Libby, if this man didn't get on that flight, let's be very clear. If this man didn't get on that flight and was living in Toronto as he has been, for quite some time, with a lot of time spent in the community, there would be nothing to see here. There's no danger to public safety so long he is under the supervision of CAMH and doing well on his medication. Gary Chamowitz, Head of Service Forensics, St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, and criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. A new report finds that Canadian renters need to earn at least $20 an hour in order to afford the average one-bedroom apartment. In Toronto, it's much worse. Workers need to earn about $34 an hour on average to afford a two-bedroom apartment. It means that housing is out of reach for those earning minimum wage in all but a few neighbourhoods across the country. Libby spoke with David McDonald, senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Analysis and author of the report, to find out more. Well, you, you hear a lot about affordability in housing, and what people often mean by that is not affordability for renters, but affordability in buying houses. Um, but a third of Canadian families actually rent. They don't own. Uh, and so it certainly includes, you know, seniors, folks, uh, lower income, uh, millennials, uh, students, you know, all sorts of folks rent. Um, and that issue doesn't get nearly the same kind of press as the fact that uh, real estate prices are going through the roof. And so I wanted to bring more focus to it and see what's happening on that front, see how affordable or unaffordable different cities and different neighborhoods are. So obviously Toronto and Vancouver are the worst. Certainly the worst, uh, you know, $35 an hour is what you'd have to make to uh, for the average two-bedroom there. If you're a minimum wage worker, uh, then it's, uh, you know, you'd have to work 100 hours a week at minimum wage to be able to afford just the average two-bedroom in Vancouver or Toronto. So I, I guess the that that rents are high in big cities isn't that surprising. What I actually found most surprising in this study was that even in those big cities, if you go down to the neighborhood level, so you look at Toronto, we've got 117 different neighborhoods for which we've got data. In zero of those neighborhoods could you afford a one-bedroom, much less a two-bedroom apartment, if you were working at minimum wage. And this isn't unique to Toronto. You, You find the exact same thing in Vancouver, the exact same thing in Ottawa. In fact, of 31 of the 36 cities for which we have data, there are zero neighborhoods where you can afford a two-bedroom apartment if you are working at minimum wage. And that, to me, is the more striking fact. It's not that 
average rents are high, but that no place in these big cities can you find affordable rent anymore. doesn't matter where you look. Wouldn't most people who need a two-bedroom apartment uh, have a family? Wouldn't they be two people working? It's certainly possible, but you think of families like, uh, you know, you've got an adult taking care of an elder parent, for instance, or you've got a single parent who's got children and needs the two bedrooms and so on. Um, but the situation isn't really that much better for one-bedroom apartments. So, yes, there's more cities where... Oh, where you can find at least one neighborhood um, where you can, uh, you know, where you can afford that one-bedroom apartment on minimum wage, um, but uh, you know, it's it's still two-thirds of the cities you cannot afford even a one-bedroom apartment in any neighborhood. It doesn't matter where you look, uh, and it really comes back to the fact that. Um, if you are a full-time worker, you're out there, you're working, maybe you're making minimum wage, but you're working hard. Um, in most big cities, there just isn't a decent and modest place for you to live. We're not talking uh, that you you know, that you need a four-bedroom house or something like that, but, you know, a decent one- or two-bedroom place for you to live where you've got a bit of space, um, despite the fact, uh, you know, that, that you're making minimum wage, you're working full-time. In most cities, you just cannot afford that. And so what ends up happening is that people end up with roommates, they spend much more than... Uh, you know, the 30 percent threshold of their income on rent, Um, or they they just get priced out. And so they move further and further out uh, into the suburbs, out out of the downtown core. Now, a couple of days ago here in Toronto, uh, the mayor announced that there's going to be a separate housing agency for seniors designated housing. Um, does, Does this kind of a squeeze affect that as well? And do you think that should be treated separately? Well, interestingly, seniors are make up a third of all of the families in Canada that spend more than 30% of their income on rent. So uh, not uncommon to have particularly single seniors, often single senior women uh, on fixed income, spending a lot of their income on rent. Um, and so one of, the, one of the other programs that the federal government is presently negotiating with the provinces is what they're calling the Canada Housing Benefit, which is it's just a, a, a cash transfer to families that that spend too much of their income on rent. Um, and it's at this point, it, the, the budget cap is far too tight on it. And so it's, it's quite miserly. And, and, and so it won't cover most families that spend too much on rent. Um, it will likely be restricted, heavily restricted to particular groups. Um, and so what it, can act, what it can do is it can act as a stopgap from now to the time where these affordable rental units get up and running and are built. You know, it takes time to build apartment buildings, obviously. Um, However, depending on what the, how the criteria are set, uh, it, it may or may not help seniors. David McDonald, senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Analysis. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Dave in Brampton phoned with his personal take on hallway health care. My wife has been in the hospital many times. And each time that we've gone there, uh, we've had to wait hours and hours and hours to get looked at the first time. Uh, I don't think it's a bed's upstairs. It's just that the emergency department in Brampton can't handle the, uh, the amount of uh, people that are going in there. Robert in North York phoned to talk about what he sees as the solution to ending pedestrian deaths. I, I don't think it's good. Anything to do with speed, like it's got everything to do with distracted driving. 
I don't know how high they can make the penalties, perhaps prison like a drunk driver, before people finally get the message. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. As always, a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Linda, who listens to Zoomer Radio in Buffalo, New York, and says it's tough waking up in America these days. It bothers me that people do not take the time to find out the proper information, and they listen to this man who is like a Pied Piper. And he portrays himself to be honest, and yet he's told more lies than five presidents totaled. You know, I hear people call, and I'm going to sure you're going to have callers after me going, oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Well, yeah, I do. All right, because I, I read and I get informed, and I don't take the first thing that's out there um, for, verbatim. Um, and, and that's what I ask people to do, and what's a shame is people, whether you're Democrat or Republican, the atrocity that is going on in, in this United States, not only with the immigrants, not only with women that were elected by Americans to run into Congress, to be their voice, all right, the, the, the border situation. Anything that this man has touched, he's killed. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. You've been listening to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Produced for MZ Media Limited by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. <laughs> 